0: Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. All right, back in Jonah. Oh, okay. Yeah, guys, there's some people who are trying to find seats. If you don't mind scooting in. Uh, just to leave space on the outside, make it easier for people to find seats. Thank you. <clears throat> and while you're doing that, uh, be flipping to Jonah. We have spent now, this is, uh, I believe this is week nine in Jonah. Uh, this was supposed to be a, a, a small jaunt, and it's it's turned into quite the trek. Okay? Okay. Uh, but it's been, it's been good for us, and I, and I, and I think we've needed it. Um, it was my aim initially to try to finish today, but after having studied, uh, that's not going to be possible. So uh, we've got at least two more weeks uh, of Jonah. <clears throat> well, that's good news. Um, but I, but I want to I say this. As far as Jonah goes... Uh, we haven't really, like the rubber meets the road here in chapter 4. This is where things get real. We get it to, to the bottom of the real issues here at Jonah chapter 4. Uh, so far we've, we've had a, a lot of conversation. Remember the point of being in Jonah was that, that we as a ministry would be able to see Jonah uh, and see his life and see his um, emotional life and see his thought life and be able to learn uh, from the way that he acted, the way he conducted himself, uh, the words that he spoke, and, and be able to recognize in ourself some of the things that we see in him, uh, which were completely dysfunctional. I mean, up to this point, J- Jonah's basically just a loser. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no way around it. Jonah has only failed repeatedly over and over again. And the point is, is, is not that, that the issue isn't even necessarily his actions. His actions are symptoms of a seriously broken Emotional and thought life. So let's just briefly walk through what we've seen from Jonah so far. So at the very beginning of Jonah in chapter four, we see God makes a request of Jonah, but because Jonah did not share God's heart for the Ninevites, he takes off running. Okay, that's how that's how things start in the book. All right, God wants to send Jonah to warn the Ninevites of impending doom, and instead of going to the Ninevites, he takes off running. He sets off across. The Mediterranean. So then we follow him on that journey. So he's crossing the Mediterranean, and then a wind comes, a storm comes. We spent some time talking about storms in chapter one, and uh, and we and we talked a lot about um, how God uses storms in our lives uh, to to show us and to teach us and to grow us. Then he's swallowed by a whale. You know, stuff like that happens. He's swallowed by a whale. In chapter 2, a great fish is prepared. Uh, Jesus refers to it as a whale uh, in chapter 2. And, and by the end of chapter 2, we see Jonah repenting, falling, falling before the Lord, broken, uh, afraid of his consequences, and he cries out to God. And God's will wins over, over Jonah's will. So Jonah repents to the point where, where he's agreed to obey God And does so with great determination. We talked about how having just been spit up on the shore, uh, it would be a very difficult, physically difficult thing to set out on a journey towards Nineveh. Several days of walking in in a climate that probably wouldn't be conducive for for hiking, okay? Desert-like areas. And he sets off for Nineveh in order to obey God. And when he gets to Nineveh, he preaches a very simple message. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4 says, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Okay, so that's the message. You're, you're going you're to fall. You're going to fall. And the outcome of that very simple warning was... A revival. In fact, the greatest revival that humanity has ever seen. Look at verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Okay, That's a position uh, of contrition. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock, taste anything, so he proclaimed a fast. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God, yea, let them turn every one from his evil way. That's repentance. And from the violence that is in their hands, who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger, that we, that we perish not? And God saw their works, that, he, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. So we learn that possibly as as many as 400,000 people turned away from their sin and turned towards God that day. And it's a really easy thing to read about. It's a pretty incredible thing to think about. A murderous, idolatrous, pornographic, and barbaric society, completely redeemed because they repented. Now, and I want to say, this is not something that deserves glossing over. Okay, this is the whole point. And this will be the conclusion of Jonah. That God loves people. This is the, this is the conclusion. So, this is a sneak peek to the very end. Is that God absolutely, 100% loves people. And desires to redeem them. And so key point number one. We have to understand this. That we can't comprehend God's mercy. Key point number one. God's mercy goes beyond our understanding. It goes beyond our understanding. Okay, well well that's a really simple key point. There's nothing magical about that key point. But listen to me. That key point is the magic. We cannot, we cannot possibly get our mind around the great mercy that God has. Okay. And maybe it's because we don't fully understand that the Ninevites, in terms of our understanding, do not deserve redemption. In terms of our flesh and the way that we would see us, this is, this is as if God redeemed Hitler and all of the Nazis. This is is if the the Germany as we know it in terms of World War II just laid down their arms of repentance before God and fell before Him and were completely redeemed. This This is an equivalent to that. And that's very difficult for us to understand. And listen to me, you don't have to get it. I want to set you free from that. You don't have to get it. You just have to desire it. You just have to desire it. And this, this is what we're going to be getting at today. And this is what I want us to, to, to begin to consider. Is that it was not sufficient for Jonah to obey God. It was not sufficient for Jonah just to obey God. The whole point of Jonah is this. This is God's cry. Have my heart. Have my heart. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we need you. And we need your heart. And there's so many of us in this room that are guilty, uh, myself included, of performing the thing that you ask of me out of obligation, but forgetting along the way that you desire for me to understand it at the level of that you do, and, that, and, to, and to be drawn into your heart. I, I won't ever be able to comprehend fully how much you love me. I won't, this side of eternity, I won't be able to, I'll never be perfect at the level that you're perfect. I'll never lo- love souls the way that you do, but it's your desire that I join myself to you in a way that I would learn to love people the way you do, that I would, that I would The the trajectory of my heart and my the posture of my life, the the posture of my mind and my heart would be God, give me your heart and your mind. That I want to know you and and I want to know your desires and I want to know your will and I want to know your ways. And I need you to teach me that I long for it and I desire it, and I will not set my heart and my mind against you. I will not do that. I will long to understand. And so God, I pray that you would teach us today, that you would use the story of Jonah to to show us that it's not good enough, we sing trust and obey, it's not good enough just to obey. We have to trust. We have to trust. Help us, in Jesus' name, amen. So Jonah chapter 4. So in the midst of this great victory, we cannot forget that our story is about Jonah's heart. And while the uh, magnificence of the Ninevites' salvation is awe-inspiring and glorious, we have to remember that our primary objective in studying this book is to understand why Jonah is the way that he is. It's a case study of God's relationship with His children, those that are disobedient and emotionally disconnected from Him. That's the point of our study. You know, God could have chosen someone who would have been willing to go to the Ninevites. It didn't have to be Jonah, did it? It could have been someone else. It could have been someone who was willing, and this this story wouldn't have existed. But God chose someone who was belligerent, just like you and me, because he wanted to paint a picture. You know, he didn't need Jonah to preach such an an uninspiring message. You know, it's probably one of the most uninspiring messages ever preached in all of Scripture. Right? Right? He could have used anybody to say those words. But God God wanted a willing servant and he was willing to teach and to sanctify and to pursue Jonah so that Jonah would have his heart. God didn't want to just reach the Ninevites, he wanted to reach Jonah. God cares about you and he wants to use you, but he's concerned about your relationship with him. He's concerned about your relationship with him. He's concerned about whether or not you share the same thoughts and the same passions as he does. It is his pleasure to win his people so that they can share in the blessings of his righteousness. But sharing is important. Sharing is important. Jonah is satisfied with obeying, but he's not satisfied with sharing. He's willing to reluctantly oblige God by loaning him his body and his mouth. But he is unwilling to lovingly observe God by yielding his heart and his mind. Do you guys get that? So when we go back and we look at the repentance of Jonah in in chapter 3, what we see is a Jonah who is broken physically. And he's saying, okay, 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 I'll loan you my body for this work. He's he's repentant at the level that he's willing to obey physically. But he's not broken at the point where he's willing to to give his heart and his mind to Christ, to God. And that's the way we are. That's That's how we are. Many of us, we really value what we have in our ministry, in our ministry activities. We're willing to loan ourselves to Bible study for an hour or two. But very few of us are willing to do the work of knowing God from day to day in the quiet place of our home. We don't want to, because what we're really saying is, I, you know what? I, I'm willing to relent and to repent to the level of which I will let you use me, God. Because that's actually kind of fun. But very, very few of us, we, do we understand what it means to pursue the heart of God so that we know Him in every given moment. The, the heartbeat of God, if you will. Romans 12.1, listen to me. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, we like to say this first part a lot. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We like to say that part, don't we? It is just reasonable that we obey God. That we die, that we sacrifice ourselves, that we sacrifice our bodies to the ministry. We like to say that. Because at some level, for some of us, we've trained ourselves so that sacrifice is actually somewhat fun and enjoyable. It's comfortable. We can do it. To the point where it actually loses the sting of sacrifice. and becomes something else. And actually the part that's really difficult is the next part, chapter 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is, good, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, so it's talking here not just about the sacrifice of our bodies, but the conformity of our heart and mind to His will. It's not good enough that we just occasionally choose to sacrifice for the reasonable service of God. Oh, it's just reasonable that I do ministry. It's just reasonable that I show up on Sundays for church. It's just reasonable that I spend time helping an AV. It's just reasonable. Okay, okay, there's a point in which that conversation breaks down. And you grow comfortable with what you call sacrifice, so it loses the sting of sacrifice and then you become a complacent believer conformed to the image of the world, not conformed to the image of Christ. See, what, what keeps us in a place of true sacrifice of our body is the perfecting of our inner man. It's the conformity of our lives to, the, to his will. And when we, when we take our heart and our mind and we press it into the image of God, And actually, that's the thing. That's the thing that's truly difficult, is a lifestyle of knowing the heart of Jesus Christ. So many of us suffer from these same emotional issues as Jonah. We're willing to receive the salvation. We're willing to play our religious part. We're willing to oblige the ministry. But we fail to sanctify ourselves according to his good pleasure. We fail to throw ourselves into the ownership of ministry. We fail to give ourselves to to His cause completely because we fail to harmonize our mind with Jesus Christ. Key point number two. God doesn't want uh, want us to simply accommodate Him. He wants us to approve of Him. He doesn't want us to simply accommodate Him, accommodate His requests, do His bidding, oblige Him, It's not good enough for us to just accommodate Him. What He's calling us to do is approve of His every way and will. And I actually want to suggest that a room like this, I mean, many of you have been in ministry for quite some time. Some of of you are ministry leadership. Some of you are, are, are far enough in D1 where it's like, man, there's no turning back for me. And I want to tell you that there's a point at which you're going to be tempted to accommodate God. And actually fail to approve of his every way and will. And this is actually what we see Jonah doing. We find Jonah here, rid of his task. Right? He did what he was supposed to do. Done. Done. He's rid himself of the task, and now he's free to sulk in his displeasure. So, If you've been following along in the Jonah series, you recognize so far we've had eight points of freedom. Areas that we need to be set free. And the request has been of God, set us free, set us free, set us free. And here's one more aspect of our emotional and thought life that we need freedom in. And it's actually probably leading us to the very very biggest one of all. Free us from displeasure. Free us from displeasure. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. He was very angry. God saves 400,000 people, and Jonah was very angry about that. You know, this seems insane for us to to think about. The guy would use someone like this, and the outcome would be anger. I mean, that's a crazy thought. I mean, isn't it? Like, I think in some level, when we, when we read this about Jonah, we have a hard time relating to him until we actually begin to investigate the problem here. Some way, somehow, he is so disconnected from God that the emotional outcome here is anger. Now, understanding why he's angry is complicated, and, and we're going to spend some, some time here, the remainder of the book, trying to investigate what this anger is about. In fact, God's going to ask him twice, do you, do you well to be angry? Doest thou well to be angry? He asks him that twice. But it's going to get to the heart of the matter. And I think we really need to understand this. So he was very angry, and, and, and Jonah gives his reason for his displeasure, and it reveals an interesting truth about how we, can, we often see God in our own lives. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, look at it. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Now, I don't want you to miss this. We we use this verse when we first started the study, and we're back here. I don't want you to miss this. This is very important. Oh, Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Jonah says, I knew that you were going to do this. From the very beginning, I had you figured out, God. Do Do you hear what he's saying? This is what he says to God. God, you did the exact, exact opposite thing that I would have done. I've got you all figured out. I knew where you were headed with this whole thing. And you did it. And you did the exact opposite thing that I would have done if I were you. That's pretty revealing, isn't it? God, I'm angry at you because what transpired is the exact opposite thing from what I wanted. How many of us have felt that way? You know, maybe it was the loss of a loved one that in your mind could have been delivered. God, why, why didn't you save the life of my, of my friend, my family member? Why did they have to die? Maybe it's some sort of financial loss that you experienced. Broken relationships with friends and family, life disasters of all sorts. Situations where you think God could have handled things differently. Everybody's had moments like that. This could have gone differently. And what you did, God, is the exact opposite thing from what I would have done. And I want to say this to you. One of the most powerful things that you can learn as a believer is the following, key point number three. God's good pleasure is superior to ours in every regard. God's good pleasure is superior to ours in every regard. Okay, what did it say at the very beginning? Jonah was displeased. The reason that he was displeased was because he was not aligned with the pleasures of God. In other words, understanding this allows us to assume that we are always wrong. We are always wrong except when we agree with God who always exhibits rightness. I'm going to say that again. I want you to understand this. We should assume in our lives that we are always wrong. Except when we agree with God, who is always right. But the problem is we don't think that way. In our flesh, we always assume that we're right. We always assume that our answer, our way, our expectation is the way things should go. And if you live that that way, and if you think that way, and you believe that way, you're going to find yourself butting uh, your head against God over and over and over and over and over again. And you will never be pleased with Him. It is His very nature that every action He executes by His hand, or that He allows, is according to our good. Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so, what we're talking about is ways. We're talking about his ways. The things that he does, the things that he executes, the way that he handles circumstances. We have to be content with his ways. We have to be content with his ways. And so we're talking about displeasure. And how do you deal with the displeasure of your heart? The displeasure of your, your thoughts? The frustrations that you have in life? When you find yourself sulking, when you find yourself frustrated with God, you have to first begin by understanding that the things that He does are actually always just for your good and for the glory of His name. And you have to be okay with it. And I'm not telling you that that's easy. I've never once said that anything from this study that I'm asking of you or that the Word of God is asking of you is easy. I'm not telling you it's easy. It's not easy to obey. Jonah found that out. It's not easy to trust. The song is simple, but doing it is hard. But it's got to start with with reconfiguring the way that we think about our lives. If we want to truly trust Him, we've got to start by understanding that His ways are superior to our ways. It's got to start there. That is the safest assumption. Now he continues on. Jonah continues on. I knew you were going to do this. It's the exact opposite thing that I would have done. I'm frustrated by that. I'm displeased with that. So therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. See, he knew that God's morality was distinguishably different to his own and it infuriated him. See, by morality I mean the distinction between what is right and wrong, what is just and unjust, This knowledge resides in the heart of God, defined by the very will of his nature. Okay, so let's back up for a second. Jonah is disturbed because he believes that the Ninevites deserved destruction. Right, the, The Nazis of his reality, the most wicked and barbaric people in the entire society of the world, what they actually deserved was death. And in Jonah's moral system, in his spiritual reality, he believed that the right thing to do was to destroy them from the face of the earth. And I think if we're really thinking about it, we would concur with him. I mean, if we really tried to put ourselves in his shoes if we really saw the things that that Jonah saw in his life and in his time, we would would maybe agree with him. Jonah's morality, his spiritual economy, his social, political, and personal perspective sit in direct opposition to the will of God. And Jonah had a legitimate reason to be angry with the Ninevites, but his thoughts became aberrant the moment he he let those feelings fester And let them take priority over God's will. So, what is Jonah talking about? What's he taking issue with here? What's he say? The first thing he takes issue with is God's grace. Seems strange, doesn't it? Then he questions his mercy. Then he questions the fact that he's slow to anger. Then he questions his great kindness and his forgiveness. And the relief of his judgment. See, according to the characterization of God by Jonah, God's goodness was an infraction against Jonah's morality. Jonah believes that God crossed the line. He crossed the line by being willing to extend grace, mercy, temperance, kindness, and forgiveness to murderous heathen. And this seems crazy to us, but the truth is, this is how many of us get with God. When our will comes in conflict with God's. We get this way. When our will, and when we say will, what we mean is our motivation. We're talking about God's will, we're talking about His motivations. See, when our motivations come in conflict with God's motivations, then we start thinking crazy. And we start thinking that our sin is good and God's righteousness is evil. I'm going I'm to paint a few examples for you. A young man goes through COD. He gets paired up. He plugs into a Bible study. But when he discovers that having sex with his girlfriend goes against what God says in his word, he points his finger at the church and he calls them judgmental and then he leaves. Disappears. His will came in conflict with God's will. A young woman knows that there's a call on her life to trust God for more in her ministry, to lead, to evangelize, to disciple. But a long-term boyfriend stands in the way of her committing more. So instead of focusing on God's will for her life, she grows to to resent God and grows distant from the church. Her will came in opposition to God's will Her motivations came in opposition to God's motivations. So she slips away. A young man evangelizes on campus regularly. But when his alcoholic stepdad makes a profession of faith, he has doubts that he can really change. And instead of encouraging him, he is secretly angry in his heart. I mean, I could could paint these pictures all day. Some of them are real straightforward. Some of them are real complex. But the point is this. When your emotions and your motivations stand in resistance to God's, you will never, in this lifetime, have good pleasure. You will always be displeased. See how our morality can come in conflict with God's? We create false moralities in our mind. We have perspectives that say, well, it's okay to do the things that I want to do because I've been doing them for so long and they really haven't gotten in the way. I've had these perspectives, these ideas, these desires for a really long time. I can have God and I can have this too. Can you? If those things stand in opposition to God, the moment that you discover that His will is different from your own, there's really only two two, two different options. There's only two things that you can do. You can either be broken and humbled before him and find yourself in his good pleasure or you can resist him unto your own depression and destruction. So key point number four, God's good character. What we're talking about here is character. His will represents his character. His personal nature is superior to ours in every regard. And the moment that we understand that his morality is better than our own, that his will is better than our own, his pleasures are better than our own, the sooner we can come into accordance with the way that he thinks, and we can begin to approve of him, and he can approve of us. Psalm 37:31 says, The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The law of his God is in his heart. See, when, when God's ways and his will enter our heart, and his ways and his, they become ours, none of his steps shall slide. See, we must be content in his will. We must be content in his will and in his ways. You know, our displeasure is spiritual cancer. By the way, if I move too fast, you can always download uh, the PowerPoint from off of the Kaya site. It's always there for you in advance of the message. So you can just have it on your phone, and you can look at that as as we go along. Did you know that your displeasure is spiritual cancer? Did you know that? I mean, some of you have felt that before. Look at verse 3. Therefore, now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's the conclusion that Jonah draws. See, God wanted to impart to him a a renewed perspective, one of love and redemption, but the feelings of, of hatred had already won. They'd already won in his life. The cancer had already taken hold. For Jonah, his displeasure caused him to beg for death. Listen, if the way and the will of God are not satisfying, You hate when that happens. If the way and the will of God are not satisfying to you, it's only a matter of time before you find your satisfaction somewhere else. Everybody wants satisfaction, everyone's going to find satisfaction. You're going to find it. The question is whether or not it's temporal. The question isn't whether or not you can find satisfaction. I mean, let's be honest here. Having a good job and making a lot of money, that's pretty satisfactory at some level. Sex, weed, alcohol, partying, I mean, those are just the most obvious ones. I mean, addictions of all sorts. Addictions to video games, addictions to Netflix, addictions to your phone, all satisfactory at some level. I think we can all agree to that. But the question is, is that satisfaction temporal? You know, God has an answer for your displeasure. He's got an answer for your displeasure. And it needs to begin with a prayer. And the prayer needs to go something like this. God, please set me free from personal perspectives that you want to replace with your own. And there's no way I can extrapolate this. Right? I've, done, I've done what I can do. You have to contemplate in your own heart and mind if there's things that continue to get in the way of finding your pleasure in God. If there are things in your life, ideas and perspectives, you've got to decide whether or not those things come in conflict with the ways and the will of God. You've got to decide that. Anytime I step in the pulpit to preach, it's never to, to, I'm not sitting down and having a conversation with you, I can't do that. It's your responsibility to investigate your own heart and mind and determine if there are aspects of your life, thoughts, desires, wills, ways that circumvent the ways and the will of God. And if there are, you will find yourself displeased, you will find yourself sulking, you will find yourself depressed, and you'll be on a path of destruction that looks like, God, I just want to die. And if you haven't been there yet, there will come a day where you feel that. I'm not the only person in this room who's felt depression at that level. Many of you have. And the only fix for your depression and your dissatisfaction and your wandering and your confusion is finding your pleasure in the ways and the will of God, no matter how that looks, no matter how that manifests. It's the only answer. You don't need a husband and you don't need a wife. You don't need a better job. You, don't, you, you, you need God. And you don't need to just obey him. You need his heart. You need your heart replaced with his. God, please set me free from personal perspectives that you want to replace with your own. Proverbs twelve twenty eight says, In the way of righteousness is life. And in the pathway thereof, there is no death. I mean, Jonah wanted death, didn't he? But if he would have simply placed himself in the pathway of God's righteousness, he would have had life. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. We've got his heart. It seems, it seems so simple and almost silly, doesn't it? that this book is his heart. And of course, there's going to be attack on this. Of course, there's going to be reasons not to believe every single word. I mean, Satan's really clever, isn't he? I mean, He's brilliant. Because what he's doing is he's attacking and undermining the heart of God so that if even even if we wanted to take this and transplant it into our life, it would be almost impossible. We have to believe it for every word. We have to trust it explicitly because what else are you going to do? Trust your feelings? Oh. Now you know where we're going here. Verse 4. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? There's the question. God's question is the question he had been waiting to ask the entire story. Like from chapter one, this is the question that God was waiting to ask. And he's been been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting until this moment the dude is sulking outside of the city. He's frustrated. He's disappointed. He wants to die. And he says, are you justified in your emotions? Are your thoughts right? Has your way of thinking worked out to your advantage? That's what he's asking here. Doest thou well to be angry? Don't don't look past that. This is God's question for us too. Your feelings of frustration, disappointment, fear, insecurity, apathy, are they right? Are they justified? Has holding on to these thoughts and feelings made your life any better or more joyous? I mean, God's asking you that right now in his word. See, God wants Jonah to acknowledge that his thought life was an absolute wreck. That's what he's doing here. It reminds me, um, if, if, you go, if you go to Genesis chapter 4, there's a story about Cain and Abel. You know this story? God literally asks Cain this exact same question. This exact same question. He asked him the same thing. Cain is angry at Abel because Abel was offered the right sacrifice. Cain is angry. And in his mind, his way and his will is superior to God's. And so it brings about anger in his heart. And God asks him the question, do you well to be angry? And he literally, t- guys, listen, what God literally tells him is what we just read in Proverbs twelve twenty-eight and Proverbs six twenty-three. That's what God tells him. Basically, don't you know that if you just did the right thing and you followed in my ways and according to my will, don't you know, Cain, that that you you inherit all of this? Look around. You're the one. You're the one that inherits all of this from, from Adam. Look around. Don't throw it away. Next verse, he murders his brother. Doest thou well to be angry, to be frustrated, to be disappointed, to be fearful insecure? You know, acknowledging that aberrant thoughts and emotions are illegitimate is the beginning of dealing with them and making a change. You've got to acknowledge them first. What are they? If you can't acknowledge when your thoughts and emotions are wrong, then you will only be entrenched by them. And this is what I mean by that. Okay, so listen to me. I want you to follow with me for just a second. So many of us, when we acknowledge that we have an aberrant thought or emotion, the first thing we do is distract ourselves from that thought and emotion. We just do something else. Why? Because there's lots to do. I'm not feeling good inside my heart. Or my tummy is upset because my emotions are not right. I feel a little depressed. Well, let me, just, let me just start that Harry Potter marathon again. And that'll make things right. That'll make things right. The only reason I say that is because Eve and I are, have made our way to the Half Blood Prince. How's that word? <laughs> Deathly Hollows. We are now in, we've just finished part one of Deathly Hollows. Eric's shaking his head at me witchcraft. Witchcraft. But we distract ourselves, don't we? When the feelings are icky, instead of bringing them to God and bringing them out into the light, we do well to be angry, to be sad, to be depressed, to be frustrated, to be apathetic. We do well. We do well. Listen, God asks, doest thou well to be angry? What happens? What does Jonah say? Nothing. Nothing. He says nothing. There's no response. Just like you. No response. He refuses to address it. God is trying to draw Jonah to admit his sin and make a way forward, but he can't. He can't even respond, so he just ignores it. When we should be bringing our thoughts out into the light, when we should be speaking with our Bible study leaders and asking for prayer, when we should be laying hold on the promises of God's word, we instead march east in our own stubborn ignorance. Verse 5, So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow, till he might see what would become of the city. Jonah goes to the east side, and he builds a little fort, just like a little boy, angry, I'm going to my fort. <laughs> I'm running away from home. No one will be able to find me there. And They just go to the, the fort. Man, but this is what we do. We throw pity parties. We go hide. You know, I want you to note in Scripture, that when people travel east in Scripture, that is generally a sign of leaving God's will. You can, you can find that's, that's, that's a key for you. Whenever you see people traveling east in Scripture, it's generally because they're leaving God's will. Adam and Eve live east of the garden. Cain exiled east after murdering his brother. People traveled east to build the Tower of Babel. And we want, we, want our, we want our way, so we travel east. Jonah was once again making a conscious decision to cut ties with God. Jonah was betraying God's heart and ignoring him. I'm stopping here. The good stuff's coming, but we don't have time for it. But I'll give you a sneak peek. I'll give you a sneak peek, okay? Everything is coming to a close. Jonah is found out. the truth of who we are has come out into the light. Number 10. Free us from our idolatry of heart. Okay, well, what does that mean? God is warning you of the danger of worshiping your feelings. Worshipping your feelings. When we read the Bible a lot of times, we talk about idolatry a lot, don't we? Um, Let's go to Isaiah chapter 4. It's not in my notes, because again, I'm closing unexpectedly here, but I want to close with this. Isaiah chapter 44, turn there for me. God uses Isaiah here to re- reveal to the nation of Israel how silly their idols are. Some of you might be familiar with this passage. But he goes on this, this rant about how idols in in Isaiah's time, in, in Israel, were actually made with human hands. Right? They represented different things, right? Like the idolatry of the nations, of the heathen nations, were things like fertility gods and sun gods and and, and harvest gods. and You know what I'm talking about? And so what happened was, when any when time a person needed something specifically, they would go to one of these gods and worship them. And the nation of Israel had rejected God, the God of their fathers, and adopted, had adopted all of these, this, this pantheon of gods. And what God's doing here is he's saying, he's reminding them that these things, were these idols were actually just made with people's hands. Like, they're made out of wood and, and stone and gold. And, and men made these things, and they're actually dead. They're dead. They're not alive. They can't actually do anything for you. And if you jump to verse 17, he's, he's going on through this, and it says, And the residue thereof he maketh a god. Okay, so, so he's talking about all of, all of the little different parts and pieces, the wood, the oak, and all these things to make gods. Now listen, this is the part. That we need to understand. He makes this image, but listen, he falleth down unto it and he wor- worshipeth it and prayeth unto it and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. Now, in our society, we don't do this, do we? We don't, I mean, some of you might, I guess. I mean, I mean, if some of you come from a Hindu background, you're, you're familiar with this type of worship, right? But in our society, we basically just worship our emotions. Can, can, can I get some agreement with that? Yes. Like, we don't actually worship our phone. We worship the emotional feelings that being on our phone and being distracted bring us. This is the point of everything that we've talked about so far. Is that if we're honest with ourselves, we're just... Em- absolutely 100% obsessed with our own thoughts and feelings. We're obsessed with them. Verse 18. They have not known nor understood, for he has shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth his heart. None considereth his heart. Neither is there knowledge nor understanding. Listen to me. What's the issue? What's the issue? Man does not understand his thoughts or his heart. And if we can start being honest with our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions, then we might be recoverable. we might actually find pleasure in living for God. And I know for a fact that there's some of you in this room this morning who for a long time you have not found pleasure in God. That those seasons have come and gone. And the the issue is, ultimately, the issue is this. You've, You've only ever just accommodated God, but you've never learned to approve of him of His ways and His will, His motivations and His doings. And our good pleasure has to be His good pleasure. And if we want our lives to be enjoyable, if we want our lives to be rejoicing, if we want to have true purpose and to live in that purpose, it is time to be honest about your thoughts and your emotions and to lay them down and sacrifice them on the altar. Jump down to verse nineteen. At the very end, it says in Isaiah forty four, it says, "Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree?" And what's that mean? Should you worship a piece of wood? Should I? Should I worship a piece of wood? And I want to suggest that that worshiping your emotions and your ideas is every bit as wicked is worshiping the stump of a tree. And we need that fixed. And whatever it is that you're holding on to, whatever your perspectives are, it's time to die to them right now. I'm going to ask that the worship team would come up. And we're going to pray. And if you know, listen to me, you know if there's, if there's something that continues to get in the way, of God's, of God's way and God's will, if there's a stumbling block in your life, it's time to deal with that. And I want you to come forward, meet with a counselor, or grab someone in your road that you know that you can trust. It's time to pray. It's time to deal with these things. Because you don't want to get got the way that Jonah gets got in the remainder of chapter 4. It's, it's rough, y'all. It's rough. The Heavenly Father, Lord, we absolutely need you. And Lord, we want to right now Take whatever thoughts that are in our mind that we know that have just continued to get in the way, that have only just been hurdles, thoughts in our minds, feelings in our hearts, emotions that we keep coming back to, or triggers in our life that throw us into into a whirlwind of depression. Whatever those things are, we want to lay those things before you as worthless in comparison to the will and the ways that you offer us. Lord. we want to adopt your heart. We want to adopt your mind. And we don't know how to do that. Like, we can't just make ourselves perfect. There's no no amount of doing good or obeying that's going to get us to a place where we are perfected and conformed to your image. We have to die, and we have to receive your heart and mind. And that is a work that we do continually between now and the day that we die. But God, we're asking for your help. We're asking that you would teach us. We're asking that, Lord, you would receive our vow to trade our emotions and our thoughts and replace them with your own. We're vowing that to you now in prayer. God, would you honor it? Would you help us? Lord, we love you and we adore you. And we don't want to leave today leaving anything on the table. Jesus Christ, you are the Son of God. You are the ruler of heaven and earth. And it is by your mouth that all things were created. And we want to align ourselves with you. We don't want to be Cain, and we don't want to be Jonah. We want to be with you. Not just in obedience, but in heart and mind, trusting you. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in His word. For more information about Kaya, for service times, and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.liv.com.